All right, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Annie Medallia. I'm the Deputy Director of the Global Energy Center here at the Atlantic Council. So I'd like to welcome you all to our event on the impact of low oil prices on the Middle East. This is the first in a series of events that we'll do um, focusing not just on the energy sector, but also on the politics and economics um, of a variety of regions. So before we get started, I'll briefly introduce all of our panelists. So David Goldwyn is Chairman of the Global Energy Center's Advisory Group and President of Goldwyn Global Strategies. He's served as the U.S. Department of State's Special Envoy for International Energy and as Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at the Department of Energy, amongst other positions. And he's been truly critical to, to the Energy Center's at least one-year existence thus far. Um, next is Jamie Webster. He's Senior Director at IHS Energy Downstream Research, where he works on um, oil market fundamentals, geopolitics, economics, um, and if you don't follow his Twitter, do, because it's very informative and amusing. Um, Jean-Francois Sesnick is a um, non-resident senior fellow here at the Global Energy Center and somebody we really enjoy working with. He's also the adjunct professor at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business, managing partner at Lafayette, and is a true expert um, on financial and oil markets in the Gulf. And last not but not least is Denise Natali, who's Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at NDU. Um, she has extensive experience living and working in the Middle East and has uh, specializes in regional energy security issues, Kurdish politics, and post-conflict state building. Um, so with that, I'd like to welcome the panel. And for those that are interested in following on Twitter or engaging in the conversation, you can use hashtag AC Energy. Thank you very much. Great. Well, thanks, Annie, and welcome, everyone. Uh, there's probably no part of the world where politics and economics are more intertwined than in the Middle East. And as uh, Jean-Francois and I were commenting this morning, the news is changing really on, a, on almost on an hourly basis. So we're going to look at three things this morning um, on how low oil prices are impacting uh, the countries in the Middle East, particularly the oil producers in the Middle East. Uh, first, we're going to look at the fiscal impact. Um, how is it impacting their economies, their foreign exchange rates, their debt? Then we're going to do a little tour of the countries and see how it's impacting their internal stability, uh, their relations with their neighbors, um, and their ability to, uh, to supply the global market. And then we're going to uh, get to some of the questions that I know are on a lot of people's minds, like will there or won't there be an OPEC deal? What's ISIS going to do and will that impact production? And what other uh, risks should we be worried about? But um, we're going to start this morning with, uh, with Jamie Webster and with the economics. And I guess the, the first question for you, Jamie, is, how, how are these low oil prices impacting the fiscal balances of the major producers, northern Gulf, southern Gulf, and, and otherwise? Uh, thanks, David, and thanks for having me here today. Obviously, uh, prices, I think uh, we were just looking a year ago, they were double what they are, and a year before, they were double what they were again. I'm hoping that a year from now that we're not half again where we are, because then my forecast would be wrong. Um, uh, but the impact that you're seeing is what you're seeing in, in terms of producers, not just companies, but also countries around the world, which is this much lower price is causing an immense amount of, of stress. Uh, in the kind of northern part of, uh, uh, of the Gulf, uh, Iraq is having difficulty with making pay payments to companies, which has always been kind of the case, uh, but is becoming even more dire. And the big increase in production that we've seen out of Iraq over the last year is unlikely to continue again, which of course is not overly helpful for them. All of these countries in large part are doing what they can in terms of trying to increase their production in order to reduce uh, the, 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 the fiscal uh, uh, impact. 
uh, IHS looks at kind of the break-even analysis is always something when we look at it for OPEC uh, analysis. We look at break-even analysis in two ways. One is fiscal accounts and the other is the, the current account. And the fiscal account for us is, while it's a, a useful way uh, to look at it in terms of how much money these countries have uh, for their budget, we also look at it in terms of the current account, which is how much you need in order to pay for your imports. The fiscal account for us is a bit more you have a little bit more flex. You can do the things like Venezuela has done many times, which is you know deflate your currency. There's a lot of different things that you can that you can do. It's the current account that is much more uh, stressful. And while I've talked for you know since this price decline really began in summer of 2014, most of these you know kind of the core countries have been in pretty good shape. Now with the price where it is now, 31 or so, um, all of them are in dire shape in both in both uh, uh, both dimensions. Uh, everybody is below, with the possible exception of Qatar, but Qatar is always uh, a little bit of a tough one, which I know Jean-Francois can speak to uh, a bit more. So both of these are in, are in difficult spots. So you are seeing, you see and need to get a, a view in terms of what uh, kind of uh, remaining uh, financial reserves they have. The big one, of course, is Saudi Arabia. And while, of, while they have drawn down about $100 billion, they've got, by last count, about still $635 billion. The other things that, that they're taking is you know, things like uh, cutting budgets for a variety of different things within, uh, within the country, uh, issuing bonds, which a lot of people often look at as, you know, well, they're finally at a, at a tough spot. Issuing bonds is really a kind of still a, a signal that they still have some access to financial uh, markets. So as you kind of look across, and I'll, I'll make my, brief, my comments a bit brief, you still see a great deal of stress, obviously, and will continue to. And when you get into discussions in terms of who's going to blink first, the one thing I'll say, which I'll get into a bit later, which is that Saudi Arabia, which is the one that we really need to kind of blink if, we, if, if you're the type of person that's looking for a, a balanced market, is in a much better position than arguably any producer in the world. Uh, and so they are, so while everybody is always looking at them, they can go a very long time in our expectations. Well, it's interesting because the, um, you know, the IMF uh, warned that uh, at this rate, um, the Saudis would even exhaust their own reserves mm -hmm. in five years, which is not, you know, which is not a very, a very long time. You take a different view or? Yeah, so we've, we've, we've looked at this and obviously there's lots of different ways that you can make assumptions in terms of what the oil price would be and what their drawdown. Ours is the view that their drawdown over the last year has been accelerated by two reasons. One is prosecuting the war on Yemen, which is likely to continue. So that, that, is, that is likely there. The other was a one-time thing, which was then when King Salman came in, the tradition there is for two months of salary for every government worker, every Aramco worker, and everybody else. I'm not sure if any of the presidential candidates in this country have talked about doing that. <laughs> uh, but obviously, that is a big expense. But it's also a one-time expense. And you can really see that drawdown in, uh, in January, February. That's great. And so in terms of debt burden, you're not worried about the long-term burden so far um, uh, of these countries in terms of what they borrowed and issued in bonds? I would say, you know, when, when looking at debt burden, the big one that I really look at is Saudi Arabia. And while they have been issuing bonds and, and getting debt, you know, they're not in a sort of position that they were some years ago when they actually eff effectively went bankrupt, but nobody really noticed because it was all internal. Now they've got the ability to, you know, to, to issue bonds and, and, and tap the uh, international uh, markets. So, terrific. All right. Well, let's turn to Denise and to Iraq. Uh, Iraq's got a lot on its plate. They've got uh, they've got IS in the north. They've got crashing prices. They're trying to rehabilitate the country. 
Um, let's start with the, with the government. How are they doing holding the country together and how, is, uh, how are low oil prices impacting their ability to just to manage the country? Sure, thanks, uh, David. Um, you've got two uh, dynamics going on. At the, at, the one t at the one hand, 2015 was probably the best in, in Iraqi oil production in 25 years. Iraq has reached about 4.3 million barrels of oil in production and became the fastest source, source of global supply in 2015. Uh, you've got about 3.3, 3.4 in million in oil exports in the south, just the south alone. And in the north, the Kurds have been exporting about between 550 to 600,000. So on the one hand, despite the Islamic State or Daesh, this is remarkable. And that generated about $50 billion in revenues for the Iraqi government last year. That's the good news. The bad news is that this was calculated last year at $45 a barrel. Uh, and that 50 billion is about half of the 93 billion Iraq had in 2012. What does this mean? It means last year Iraq had a deficit of $20 billion at $45 a barrel. Um, it means that IOCs still have not been paid or many have not been paid. There was about a $9 billion, uh, a nine, uh, billion deficit in 2014. I think that's gone up to 18 billion in 2015 being paid in oil. In the north, it's even worse because the Kurds are front-loading on six-month contracts, and this is even $5 a barrel less than what is now $20 a barrel or what it may be. So the point is, at, at the larger level, when Iraq as a, as a, as a country depends on its GNP, uh, its oil re its revenues, oil represents 90% of the Iraqi Budget. So when you have a decline in prices the way that it is, this is really affecting, deeply affecting uh, the Iraq's ability to sustain itself. And I'll give you some examples. And I had the opportunity to, to be in Baghdad and meet with the Prime Minister and, and, and different oil folks uh, in, in the South and the North of the last couple of months. And this is the overriding, overriding concern is how they're going to sustain a government with this bloated government sector when you've got about 9 million people on the government dole. Um, you've got a country that's been habitually you know, based on large social welfare functions. So electricity issues, you've got strikes, you've got reforms, and it's gone down to very important local levels. Uh, in the north, uh, like I said, it's, you're actually reversing some of the gains that have been made over the last 15 years. I, I am telling you, there are places in the north that they're down to three hours of electricity a day. Uh, Baghdad still needs to import electricity from Iran. Uh, and I don't see any of this getting better in terms of being able to sustain this budget. Baghdad does not have anything close to the type of reserves that Jamie talked about in some of the Gulf states. I think you're down to maybe 40 or $50 billion left, which can go through in, in a moment. There can be loans being taken out, small loans by the IMF or the World Bank. But nonetheless, there's still this financial, deep financial crisis alongside the military campaign to fight the Islamic State, Daesh, and again, this idea that they have to start making deep cuts. I don't know how, how, how that's going to be able to handle in the long term. 
We've heard a lot about um, Iraqi strategy for adaptation. So they've talked about taking these contracts in the South, which now pay companies about $2 a barrel, and revising the framework. Um, they've been talking for maybe seven years about having a, a water system to basically bring water in for injection in the fields so that their production isn't capped. And yesterday there was news of an Exxon CNPC mega deal, where they would do the water, they would do the pipeline, they would develop some fields. But this is $10 billion worth of investment in a world of $30 oil. Does Iraq have the administrative capacity to pull this off? And you know, is there any market sense to this kind of a deal? Right, and there still is a lot of interest, not just from Exxon, from Luke Oil, from Shell, working in, with the Basra Oil Company, it used to be the, the South Oil Company, to develop some of these fields and some of these water injection projects. However, I, I, it goes back down again to the, to the capabilities of the Iraqi government under these conditions to pay the oil companies. If you do not have some of these uh, contracts being honored or there's delays or there's, they're talking about renegotiating, then uh, I would say that at least some of these projects are going to be put on hold or they're going to be you know, slowed down. Um, there has been discussion, the, the, prime, the Iraqi oil minister, um, Abdul Mahdi, has talked about renegotiating the contracts. That has not started yet. It may start in April, but even if it was to start, it may take at least another 12 months before any of these contracts uh, to, to be renegotiated. And I want to make a, another point about any potential contract negotiation. Yes, there's been a recognition in, in Baghdad that some of these contracts need to be further incentivized for the IOCs. That is, how do you now uh, further equate risk and payments with, with the lower price of oil? However, uh, and so you can call it uh, looking like production sharing contracts and less like technical sharing agreements, but they're still technical sharing agreements. Um, how far that they will be able to go, will they allow the ILCs to book reserves, which is the key issue? I I'm not so certain. I would emphasize that there still is a very important issue in, in Iraq, and that is the, the issue of sovereignty and the issue of ownership of its own resources. So I would not expect, in my view, that these contracts would be negotiated to the point where they would really be PSCs, where an IOC can book its reserves, or at least the Iraqi uh, government would lose sovereignty, because that would then be an issue domestically. Well, that sovereignty point leads me to my third question for you, which is the relationship between Baghdad and Erbil. Oh. Um, and there was a, there was a deal uh, where the, the KRG was going to produce a certain amount, they'd get paid a certain amount, they'd still get their reimbursement. And that kind of uh, that kind of collapsed. So um, I guess a couple of questions there is, you know, what, what are the prospects for? How are those relations going? What are the prospects for reviving that deal? Or at this point, given how how little that 17% of the Iraqi budget is worth, can the Kurds really go it alone, both right. on oil and gas? Um, at this at this moment, and and. and um, both sides, this almost seems to be a, a tacit understanding that, um, yes, for the Iraqi government, this is an issue, but there's also the priority of fighting Daesh. And there's neither the political priority, the political will right now to take on uh, the KRG in the legal way that they did before Daesh came about. So that if, you know, and, and this is a pretty pro-Kurdish oil minister right now, and I spoke to him about it, and he said, you know, we'll give them another chance. We can't do this right now. They know that they can't pay some of these, these, uh, these demands or these claims that the KRG needs, and the KRG is, is getting some of this oil out. So there's a recognition on this point. There's another issue, though. 
without a doubt, through the many, many circles that I spoke through in southern Iraq and Iraq, when you, you bring up this issue, it's an extremely sensitive one in the sense that they, the Iraqis just don't care. They say, if you don't want to pay, if the KRG doesn't want to pay into the system, let them do it. Okay, that doesn't mean that they, they can take Kirkuk or Mosul, but the fact of the matter is it's become transactional that the demand minimally right now is you either pay like the rest of the oil producing country regions do or we're not going to honor and pay these 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 oil costs so for the moment for the moment i think both of them have decided that the strain is so great and as you indicated the prices are so low that baghdad can't really pay anyway however i would imagine that when if this dash bit uh, dissipates or goes away, that it will you know, revive again. Because at the end of the day, these issues are deep. They were, they were there before Dash came. Is there a national hydrocarbons law? Is there a revenue sharing law? Who's going to have claims to Kirkuk? And I'll say one point that, that was, you know, this was contentious on the Kurd side. But of those 550 or 600,000 barrels of oil, about 400 are coming from Kirkuk. So this is very important. And this is going to be now claims within the Iraqi uh, d d you know, political, political system. So is it, can it be revived again? Look, they put inside the 2016 budget an allocation for the KRG. At least it showed some sense of goodwill. Will each side be able, after all of this, to come back and say, I recognize certain points? Uh, you know, there's going to have to be some movement. Uh, but at the moment, uh, it's to each, ben each, each side's benefit to let them just go their way. Terrific. Well, John Francois, let me turn to you. And you know, in, in, everywhere around the world, these low oil prices are e either producing creative destruction uh, or they're just creating destruction. And so I guess my question is, in Saudi Arabia, we're hearing they're cutting subsidies, they're looking at transparency, but they're also pumping up production and crashing these prices. What's the strategy? And if you know, who's in charge of it? <laughs> well, that's a, an easy question as usual, David. <laughs> uh, well, I think there's definitely a policy to crash the price. I think the policy is really basically to force uh, other producers to cut production uh, so that in the long term prices can go back up. We're beginning to see some of the effect after a year of doing this. Now we just heard yesterday that maybe the Russians perhaps, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, it is also, uh, to a certain extent, uh, greatly appreciated by some of the leadership in Saudi Arabia because it gives them the opportunity to push for reforms, which they wanted to do and uh, did not have the ability to do until now because there are so many entrenched interests. But uh, when we see this young guy, Mohammed bin Salman, he's the one who's been pushing for removal of the subsidies. He's been the one pushing for the privatization of Saudi Ramco to basically kick the royal family out of there. And um, it, so it gives uh, them the opportunity to modernize the state. I mean, now we're talking VAT tax. I mean, this was just you know, the ultimate sin to even mention the word. Um, we're talking the removal of the subsidies. People pay twice as much for gasoline as they used to, which is half of what we pay now uh, here. And uh, natural gas has gone up from 75 cents to 125. And for ethane, it's gone up to 175. So the big entrenched interest of the chemical companies have been really totally squeezed. Uh, so. In some ways, it, it, uh, it's good and bad. I think from the Saudi standpoint, from a policy standpoint, they are not so hurt because as Jamie pointed out, they still have 
probably around $800 billion they can play with to survive, you know, between their cash reserves and what they can borrow from their own banks and, and the social security. They, they can go on for a while. And if the Russians happen to give in, eh, good. This way they can live for, for, they can really have all the modernization of the economy which Mohammed bin Salman has been looking for while still making a little bit of money. So what's this IPO about? Are they going to spin off the downstream because now it's a lousy business because they've, they've raised the price of natural gas? Yeah. Or is this a political move to somehow or another uh, leverage modernization? I think it's a political move. I mean, definitely. There's been talks of privatizing Saudi Ramco for probably 20 years. You know, it's nothing, you know, 30 years. It's really nothing new in terms of concept. But it was always held back because if you have privatization, that means you have transparency. And transparency at the highest level of Saudi Ramco is what the, uh, the royal family in particular did not want. Because when the money comes in into the Saudi Ramco from the sale of oil, some, a certain small percentage goes automatically to the royal diwan. And uh, you know, all of a sudden, we'll know how much money Saudi Ramco is making, precisely. And we'll know how much money they're giving to the Minister of Finance, because that's an information the Minister of Finance already gives. So the difference would be what has disappeared vanished somehow. And that is really creating a lot of pressure. So within the family, that creates tensions, because some people would not want <laughs> to, 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 to know, people to know how much there is. But the advantage of having this economic problem is that it, it, now Mohammed bin Salman and all the young people, not just Mohammed bin Salman, 70% of the country is below the age of 30. So he has the support, basically, of 70% of the people. The, the, the idea is that if we have to suffer by paying more for our gasoline and so on, then the royal family has to disclose where they get their money. And there might even be some definition of who's a prince, who's not a prince, who's allowed to get money and whatnot. And this is very sensitive, but it, it gives them the ability to move that way. So to play this out a little bit, there's been this uh, question about the rift in the royal family, whether the king and Mohammed bin Salman are, are marginalizing uh, Mohammed bin Nayef and, uh, and the other families. So you see this as a little political jujitsu. It's harder to push Mohammed bin Salman out if he's the modernizer? Yes, definitely. But I, I, I'm presently changing my mind about a lot of things because the news are happening faster than I can think. So, uh, uh, but uh, Mohammed bin Naif, I thought, was very much one of the reformers as well. And perhaps even, no, at least to a certain extent, as much as Mohammed bin Salman. But um, I, I'm, we haven't seen Mohammed bin Naif very much lately. I think there's been a lot of issues there. I mean, he was the president of China's visit, was, I think, a major disaster uh, for, in Saudi Arabia and for China, really, at the same time. And Mohammed bin Naif was not involved in this whatsoever. He never showed up on television. Uh, he was not in the meetings and whatnot. So there, there are some concerns, honestly, on um, uh, a, a small detail, which if I haven't you know, I did, did discuss this with you earlier, but do you know we don't have a Saudi ambassador in the United States? Yeah. Oh, yesterday? yesterday. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. See, I didn't even know that. But it took some time to, to get him in place. Yeah, you took uh, over a year. And, uh, you know, that was why did it take so long? That was really a big problem. But anyway, so uh, there, there are some tensions uh, in cases because in this case it would have been because they could not agree on who really was going to ultimately be the person. I'm glad they did. He's a very nice person. So.
Before we turn to Iran, let me just ask you a question about the neutral zone. There's this uh, dispute between uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Is this economic? Is this political? Um, what's, or is this just another way to, you know, to, to impact global production? Well, the, the, uh, both. I, I, think, uh, I think the Saudis would very much want to show Chevron and, and the Kuwaitis that they are the boss <laughs> and uh, that uh, they can control the production over there. And um, so and it gives them also the ability to expand production when they reopen it and not. So a little bit of both, I would say. Okay. Well, let's turn to, uh, let's turn to Iran. Uh, and first on the production side, uh, the numbers of what Iran's reentry will mean to the, to the oil market have been all over the place from what the Iranians say, which is a million barrels a day, to 300,000 barrels a day. So to start with, what do you think their uh, reentry on oil looks like? And what do you think their reentry on gas might look like, too? How soon can they ramp up production? Are they just going to inject internally, or are they going to actually be able to export? Yeah. Uh, so on the oil side, we're of the mind that by the end of this year, you're probably going to see another, say, 400,000 barrels a day. Uh, you are right. The, the, you know, the Iranians have come out with numbers as high as a million barrels, uh, while also cautioning that they're not going to do it in a way that impacts the market. Uh, and uh, most of my uh, colleagues and competitors are you know, around 300 to 500,000 barrels a day. The reality is it's a huge amount of uncertainty with it. And uh, for right now, it looks like you're actually having some, you're going to have still have some difficulties. So while some of these sanctions are off, realize you're in a much different market than you would have been, say, two years ago if these had, had uh, been taken off. We're in a very oversupplied market. So if you are a refiner and you believe that there's even a slight hint of some sort of problem on sanctions, you may still, even though the sanctions have been removed, you may still be predisposed to still taking uh, the crude from Iraq or Saudi or, or something uh, like that. Uh, for us, we're paying attention to trying to understand what deals have been signed. So there was a deal just signed with Total, uh, claimed by the, Iraq, the Iranians that, uh, that they'll be uh, pushing that up. But I think actually in the short term, and even longer term, while, while crude is going to be a big deal in terms of coming onto the market, don't forget on the demand side either. Remember that the sanctions were originally, uh, some of the earlier sanctions were about reducing and eliminating gasoline imports into uh, Iran. So now Iran won't have to use its petrochemical uh, facilities to make this very low-grade gasoline, and you'll start to see gasoline flow into there, which actually helps the global market. Right now, if you have uh, barrels from Iran actually hitting the market, which I ex still expect despite the problems that they'll be happening, you're actually hitting it at the worst time. So we're just starting to head back into another refinery turnaround season. Then generally it goes US first. Obviously, that doesn't really matter since no barrels are coming here. Uh, then Europe, uh, and then Asia. And for us, while everybody focuses very much on the market share battle between Asia, uh, you know, and 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 how the Middle East uh, uh, economies are going to kind of work on trying to market share battle there. For us, the battle is really Europe over this next year. Iran lost six hundred thousand barrels a day of exports to to uh, Europe, uh, you know, from early two thousand twelve until uh, basically today. They are very eager to get back into that market. Uh, Asia is actually more crowded now that Russia, which Russia has really been the big, the big leader there. And so I think over the next year, you're actually going to see a lot of competition there uh, in terms of trying to place those barrels. And again, this is in an environment where you know Nigeria is having a difficult time with placing its barrels. You're still in a very oversupplied situation for the next several months. Uh, and then our view is that these uh, these 
um, redu a reduction in production actually starts to allow you to get back to a balance. But right now, this is arguably the quote unquote worst time. That is if you want high prices, if you're a driver, it's fantastic uh, over the next several months for those barrels to, to come back in. Well, I understand how uh, Iran can sell the oil that it's got in storage, but with the sanctions, how do they even get to 400,000 barrels a day? It looks like the service companies are afraid to go back in. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, unless the Chinese can do enhanced oil recovery, how do they even get back to 400,000? And this is the big question, which is, which is, and, and you know, IHS, as you know, has an immense amount of data. And even for us, there's a lot of opacity when it comes to, uh, to Iran. So trying to assess what they can do uh, is actually a very difficult uh, sort of process. We've looked at what they've done, obviously, before 2012. We recognize that they have had some gains in terms of uh, what they can do internal to the to the uh, uh, country. The current uh, oil minister has had some uh, some successes in terms of bringing on NGLs. He's had some successes uh, in uh, in South Pars. Uh, so you have seen a few things, and you've also seen a more of a professionalization in in NIOC, kind of pushing back the IRGC after some of the years of uh, Ahmadinejad. So you're seeing some improvements there, but you're right. You are still dealing with uh, the difficulty of trying to bring in these companies where you need that. And longer term, we still see a lot of stress. So we don't see this 400,000 barrels a day being doubled again the following year or anything. You're going to have a difficult time with getting the companies in, service sector companies, and longer term, the upstream companies to come in and actually do this. Particularly, as, as everyone knows, the Iranians are remarkably good uh, negotiators and sometimes uh, to their own detriment, uh, which could then end up slowing things down uh, in terms of uh, in terms of bringing in these companies. And gas, natural gas, do they? Uh, and gas, I think they have they have always you know they were one of the founding members of the uh, uh, gasoline uh, sorry natural gas uh, export uh, forum. Uh, we're still of the mind you know right now you are still in a if you're in an oversupplied situation for oil you're certainly in an oversupplied situation for uh, LNG. You're probably going to see some additional potential additional exports perhaps to Turkey. Uh, but right now, they've actually, you're going to see, my view is you're probably going to see their economy grow quite a bit more after some years of having difficulty with trying to access the international markets. And so with that, you're likely to actually see their internal demand grow quite a bit, and so not as much in terms of uh, exports. Well, and then before we get to the OPEC question, uh, this goes to really to Iran's motivation, um, and for the rest of the panel too, can the Iranian economy prosper without um, big investment in oil and gas? Is it diversified enough that uh, lifting sanctions will have some asymmetrical uh, thing and therefore maybe they're not as highly motivated to support a production cut as, as maybe uh, the U.S. industry would like them to be? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start with that. Uh, so I, as you know, I go to all of the, uh, the OPEC meetings and I always uh, laugh uh, you know, when, when we're having these discussions about how there's going to be a cut. And everyone is still very much of the mind that, yes, it's a good idea to cut, the, uh, but what hasn't changed is everybody is still of the mind that you should do the cutting, someone else should do the cutting. Uh, so everybody's certainly happy to meet to find out who else is going to be cutting. Uh, but at this moment, you, with Iran about to come back, I really don't see any real view that uh, that they're going to want to, you know, uh, make any sort of cut. Either the Saudis, uh, the Russians, or anybody, other than the fact that you know, with going and drifting into twenty dollars uh, last week, which I blame on Davos, um, is is something <laughs> that is, uh, uh, you know, that is not. I don't I don't see that happening right now. And you are right. You're making a, a very good point, which is when you look at the economies of these of these countries. 
Um, for Iran, most of this money is really more important for the government budget, but in terms of the whole economy, it's a much more diversified economy versus if you look at Saudi, that oil money is important both for the government budget but also for the economy uh, itself. And that difference actually does have some, some uh, difference in terms of its impact on those countries. Thanks. Um, in my conversations with different Iranian stakeholders, I mean, the idea that the Iranians, after all of these years of sanctions, are going to say, you know what, let, let, let's just keep our production really low and let's not get on board. There's a sentiment that they've been penalized, rightly so, uh, with sanctions, and they have, the quote was, we have a right to increase our production like any other oil producing nation. So the fact is, I wouldn't, you know, this is even political that to think that after all of these years of sanctions that Iran is going to say, well, this just isn't right, let's, let's get together. I think that that's, um, it's, it's fanciful at best. And, and, I, and I do agree with Jamie too. While they don't have the, the type of reserves that Saudi Arabia does, Iran is not nearly as dependent on oil and does have a far more diversified economy. So I actually do see Iran being able to, to uh, muster through this crisis uh, just the way that it did during sanctions. Jean-Francois? Yeah, I think there might be a political game there that could be played by Iran. I'm not sure they will, but uh, they could say we want absolutely to do 500,000 barrels a day by the year end, uh, but for the sake of OPEC and so on, we'll, we'll only produce 300,000, which is all they can do anyway. And uh, I mean, that kind of politics has uh, happened in OPEC before. And so I think they could sacrifice 200,000 barrels, which are not there in the first place. So. We'll see. I mean, so the Iraqis have said they'll cut actual barrels. The Iranians could cut potential barrels, right. um, and Saudi would need to cut real barrels. Yes. So you pull that together, you've got the economic case for for a production cut, and mm -hmm. presumably maybe the Venezuelans, the others. Any chance that happens on the economics? Uh, I mean, from my standpoint, no. I mean, very. You know, the, the the Saudis very much recognize that if they step back or have the view right now that if they step back, somebody else will step up, and so they're looking at it as kind of a zero sum sort of game. Uh, if you get to a point later, you know, sometime after Iran has come back, and if there's a recognition that the U.S. isn't either going to respond, so it's not a quote unquote threat. Uh, then potentially you could get to a, a point where there might be some sort of OPEC deal, but I also think that by the time you get to that, you may actually be at a point where they actually need to go in the opposite direction. You may actually be in a very tight market where you actually need more. And realize the one thing that, is, that has changed, which is, which is less talked about right now because when you're at prices of $30, which is that Saudi has increased production. Uh, as mentioned, Iraq has increased production. Iran is getting ready to increase production. This is all at a cost of spare capacity, real spare capacity uh, within OPEC. And so you're actually reducing uh, your respondent, uh, your ability to respond longer term. And so we could get to this point where suddenly we're in a tight market and we are, this isn't like the 80s where you still have huge amounts of spare capacity. You're actually at a very low spare capacity level. Our view is that by the end of this year, you're actually going to get to the same sort of levels that push prices above $100 in 2008. Now, it's a very different oil market, but I think the market's definitely going to pay attention and say, oh, we're now dependent on shale and, and stocks. And so I, I don't see Saudi right now really uh, pushing back, but there is some implications in terms of the broader oil market for that. Mm -hmm. Jeff Reswell? I think there won't be any OPEC arrangement unless there's an arrangement between OPEC and non-OPEC. And I think the Saudis are key. If the Saudis do get a deal with the, with the Russians of some sort, uh, 
uh, even uh, it, not, nobody will have any incentive to come up with a, a final agreement within OPEC. OPEC's not going to cut if the Russians don't cut. And the Russians may not want to cut. Uh, in the past, as we've seen in 1999, the Russians said they would cut, but they didn't cut. But that was good enough for the market. And so maybe that's all we need. Yeah, I'd even go beyond OPEC. I just don't see, with the deep sectarian or geopolitical tensions between the Saudis and the Iranians right now, and this is where I, you know, I guess I'm a political scientist first, I do not see the economics overcoming these deep political, political divisions driving the Middle East right now. So until some of them are subsided, I just don't see why it's in the Saudis' interest or the Iranians to say, let's, let's cut production. Well, let's posit a political deal. I mean, say, for example, you know, if, the, if Assad is, you know, is top of the list for Saudi um, and the Russians agree to a deal where Assad stays in an Alawite sector and is part of a two-year transition and the Iranians have a pathway to, to Lebanon and maybe the, the Iranians back off the support for the Houthis in Yemen, so you have the Saudis have what they want, um, the Russians, um, you know, maybe have what, what they want in terms of production cut. Then do you have the political makings of a, of a production cut deal? I think this is larger than, you know, whether Assad goes or not. This is about the, the, the Saudis' perception that Iran is now coming into, onto, online politically as a new Middle East or, or, you know, another Middle East power. So until these perceptions, and it's not just Syria and Yemen and Iraq, until some of these, uh, let's say, threat perceptions are alleviated, um, whether Assad goes or not, I don't see how some of these deep sectarian tensions are going to subside anytime soon, um, whether Assad is there or not. There could be, Assad could go, but you know, Syria is Iran's strategic depth. So that I don't see changing any, you know, in, in the near future. So, so I'm gonna be my realistic, realpolitik cynic, no. <laughs> Well, I'm not quite as negative uh, as Denise here in this case, but uh, because I, I think honestly there is this enormous worry in Saudi Arabia that the Saudis are being uh, surrounded by Iran and, and that ultimately Iran wants to take Mecca and Medina. I think that's really ultimately what the fear is, and it's a deep-seated fear, no doubt. But there's also a, an economic game here, and I think that is going to take uh, the primacy over the political issues. And, and the positive thing is that if there could be some kind of a decline in the tensions on the economic side, and the oil side, then things might start improving as they had been in the past. I think the, uh, the Iranians have given a lot of indications that they, they'd love to work with the, the Saudis in some ways, of course, provided the Saudis do what they say, you know. But uh, the Saudis, uh, I think, if they can if they can somehow figure out a way to uh, show that they can manage the oil markets better, might start giving in on some of the issues. No doubt that the, the Syrian issue is vital, but I think a deal on oil can happen without the, the, the Syrian issues being totally resolved. Although I think it's very important if it does. Denise, let me come back to you on these sectarian divisions, because you have them basically in every country. Are they getting better? Are they getting worse? And are they likely to impact energy markets? Sure. Um, I, I always hesitate to, to just focus on sectarian divisions. They're there. I mentioned it. Iran, uh, Saudi, this, these perceptions of a Sunni and Shia sphere of influence across the Middle East. However, um, there is also no clear Sunni 
Muslim camp, nor clear Sunni Shia camp in such that all of these Shia countries have aligned and so that there are areas where we can have nuance and there are areas where that it goes beyond sectarianism. For instance, uh, Iraq, where we often use the word the Shia government of Iraq, does not necessarily have given Iran carte blanche in Iraqi affairs, although there's a, a group that has strong influence where the Qasem Soleiman hardliners influence. There's also the prime minister and other Iraqi nationalists who have made it clear where their red lines are. Similarly, there are, uh, Similarly, Iraq has also decided to be neutral in this Saudi-Iran uh, you know, tensions. So part of that is, you know, is a positive sign, I would say. The other issues are if you look at, for example, Turkey. Turkey's not necessarily on all issues online with this Sunni bloc, but causing its own let's say, types of problems in, 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 in northern Iraq. My point is, um, I would look beyond these geopolitical tensions and look at some of the domestic security threats of each of these countries. So that, um, would I be necessarily optimistic that, 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 that oil production can continue? Sure, because it has. But my, the larger issue for me would be, it's the types of these states. It's beyond sectarianism. So you've got failed states, you've got weak states, you've got states where central governments or oil ministers can no longer control their full economy. That's the issue, whether that be Libya or Yemen or Iraq, you'll see the same patterns happen. So to what extent uh, do, do these failed or weak entities able to control their oil sectors? Or are you gonna have all of these, you know, these, these Two, two oil sectors or three oil sectors going on at the same time. At the, uh, the Atlantic Council Istanbul Summit, Mike Hayden was on a panel and I asked him, you know, is, are Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen coming back as countries? And he said, no, really not, that they're not, they're not gonna, they will be either, you know, frozen or they will be uh, many states, not one. Do you agree? No, I mean, not to the point where I don't buy the whole easy Sykes-Picot is over, because it's not. But what, you know, the, there's no major power in the Middle East that wants to see Syria and Iraq break up. Not the Iranians, not the Russians, not the Turks, not the Iraqis, um, who? So, or not the Americans. However, what I do see is the inside of these states, I used to like to use the word rearranging or reordering. So you are going to have much more problems in, in, let's say, structuring or controlling or centralizing these oil markets. And that's the issue. It's not uh, Sykes-Picot is going to break up. We're going to have all of these little mini states like a Kurdistan and this stand and this stand. Um, how are you going to deal with entities that are weakened and subnational actors are now competing for control over different oil sectors? That's the harder question to me. So whether you have full federal systems in place, whether you have revenue sharing in place, that's the issue. And this is not, by the way, we like to look at Iraq and say Sunni Shia Kurd regions. This is, this is a myth. These are hyper-fragmented entities so that you even have smaller entities within. How are parts of these northern areas where three or four different groups are trying to look for oil resources? That's and in fact going to keep the state together, but it's going to be much harder to, to make these deals. So you've got a lot of these subnational, non-state actors making deals with each other, uh, which still requires national hydrocarbons law, legal institutions, banking institutions. That's the kind of issues that I think are important, not are we going to see states break up and that we can start dealing neatly with new states. It's actually far messier. Okay. Jeff just a conclusion is that the, the sectarianism is really a consequence of problems, not the cause. Yeah. 
And uh, I think uh, Denise explained this very well. Terrific. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Daesh, uh, the Islamic State. You know, sort of, uh, it's been a little bit of whack-a-mole in the Middle East, you know, sort of Sinjar, then Ramadi, now it's Haditha. So um, um, without doing uh, you know, uh, a discussion on whether the US strategy is working, how big of a risk is the Islamic State to at least to the energy sector in Iraq, um, maybe in, uh, a, a, even a, a threat to, uh, to Egypt um, because of the Sinai? I, I want to say I was so pleased that this is the first time in probably a year that I've actually had a, a large discussion aside from Daesh. So we got pretty far without having to talk about ISIS. <laughs> we talked about real issues finally on Iraq. Thank you. Um, I can't, I'm, these are my views, by the way, and not those of the US government. So um, first, US policy, obviously, we see some momentum. We see momentum in Iraq. Uh, a, a lot of naysayers thought that Ramadi couldn't go, and that is not the case. There are efforts by the Iraqi security forces, which are being strengthened, uh, to still secure some of these areas. And the next move, of course, is much more difficult, and that is Mosul. Yes, Sinjar has been taken, too. There's different groups. I, I can't get into strategy and all of the details. But there is some momentum in Iraq, and Syria is a harder nut to crack, by far. But the larger question is, to what extent does all of this affect the oil markets? And, and I started in the beginning. Despite all of this, since 2014, Iraq has increased its oil production to some of the highest levels in 25 years. So the southern fields are not affected, or they haven't been affected, because they've, they've, they've shielded uh, these, these, these fields. And that accounts for, what, 75, 80% of Iraqi oil production. In the north, it's been a different story. Uh, but it's not only been because of Daesh. And initially, that has affected. There was a mass migration out of IOCs. Some declared force majeure. Um, some have come back. It's the service com companies that work. So there's some security issues there. There's only about five rigs operating in the Kurdish north right now. And these security issues are still salient. But I wouldn't overdetermine just Daesh. Because the point is, a lot of this is embedded in, you know, are there banking institutions, corruption issues, legal issues? There's still, you know, payments of oil companies, a lot of issues going on above and beyond the security. And finally, and again, this affects more the northern issues. Um, I don't know whose priority it is to fight Daesh or not, and there's a lot of people benefiting from this. But the fact of the matter is there's also a PKK issue that's affecting northern production. And if you look at some of the pipeline attacks or some of the issues going on with security of pipeline assets, that is not Daesh. Some of it is equally along with some of this you know, PKK issues, which are now inside northern Iraq, which are affecting Turkey. So I would look at, again, not necessarily large uh, exports are going to be stopped, but how consistent in this? And how is this? going to push forward the very necessary legal and institutional frameworks that are needed, particularly in the North, to get this oil uh, on international markets legally. Jamie, how are you all looking at the risk, the disruption risk profile? Um, well, for us, we obviously disruption risk is always something we've, we've looked at. We actually were expecting oil prices to come down you know, in about 2012 and missed it by a couple of years because of Iran and Libya and, and everybody else. And in summer of 2014, you actually had the beginning of the summer when uh, uh, Daesh kind of came through uh, northern Iraq, popped prices up to around 120 or so. At the same time, less understood, less noticed at first was that uh, Libyan production temporarily went from about 100,000 barrels a day 
up to 925. And that really was the catalyst that suddenly kind of woke up to the, the market to the fact that we were in an oversupplied uh, situation. As you look at kind of global you know, outages, you know, involuntary outages or, or outages as, as they are. You know, you've got, you've still got Iran, you've still got Libya, you've still got several other countries. It's about two and a half to three million barrels. Statistically, you would expect this to fall back to the norms, which is the norm is about a half million barrels a day is what we kind of historically have looked at. Uh, but if you look at kind of the stress within the region, you would expect it actually has a potential to increase. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't anticipate that Libya production is going to come back anytime soon. They already had their problems, and now with uh, uh, with Dash in uh, in Sirte uh, and other places, it's uh, it, it doesn't look overly great, despite uh, the agreement uh, of some weeks ago. We are also still looking at some potential risks of other places that haven't you know, cracked just yet, and that includes Algeria, which is not discussed a whole lot, but they've got, you know, some some uh, succession issues that are going on there. Obviously, with this lower prices, that puts a lot of stress on a lot of these countries. And so, while in the, in the last year and a half, companies and countries have had a real incentive to try to increase production just as much as they possibly can, there's still not enough money flowing down to the populace, so you still have a, a, an increased risk of some sort of uh, disruption. Uh, additionally, while we also see, you know, our, our country risk people within uh, looking at uh, Daesh in uh, kind of northern Iraq, Syria, they've lost ground according to, to our experts. Uh, but we are still mindful of the potential for, you know, lone wolf style attacks and, and things like that, which can end up impacting the market pretty quickly. Now, we're still in a spot where we're overproducing globally by about a million barrels a day, so the world can handle some sort of uh, outage, but still, you know, there's still that risk there uh, that something could end up happening and, and really tighten up the market quite quickly. Realize we are, you know, when you look at the market and talk about an oversupplied market, it's about a 95, 94, 95 million barrel a day market. We are one million barrels away from being a balanced market and two million barrels a day away from being, you know, completely tight. So it's it's actually it's quite a quite a narrow sort of uh, line. Message to twenty five year old traders: you should be more worried than you are right now. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Jean Francois, do you, do you want to any any of the countries we've talked about? What what worries you in terms of uh, either internal or Daesh related disruption risks? Uh, well, I mean, definitely Algeria is, is is could be a worry. I mean, there is a. It, again, there is very little transparency on what's happening in Algeria. We don't really know who is running the government. They don't seem to have much of a president these days. And uh, that could be a problem. On the other hand, it is the, the lifeblood of Algeria is oil and natural gas. And I'm sure that's pretty well defended at, at any price, whatever the world market price is. And on top of it, I think the security apparatus of, of Algeria so is very strong and would have the entire support of the Europeans because the Europeans are very dependent on Algerian gas. So um, the, I, I'm, I'm not overly worried about Algeria having problems. They're trying to defend themselves against the events that happened two years ago where they killed all these poor folks in the, at the border with Libya. But uh, uh, I, think, I think Algeria is okay. Of course, uh, you know, the, the, the other issues mentioned by Jamie are perfectly uh, true. I mean, we don't have that much uh, leeway it could change very rapidly. All right. Well, we've got about a half hour left. We wanted to leave ample time for, uh, for questions from the audience. So I think you all know the drill. Raise your hand, state your name, ask a question, don't make a very long comment, and we'll go from there. Harvest Slavin, you're first. Yes. 
Hi, I'm Barbara Slavin. I run, run the Iran program here at the Atlantic Council, but I want to ask about China. None of you have mentioned China. What are your forecasts for, for Chinese demand? Uh, you know, their economy seems to be weakening. Um, do you anticipate that they're going to be needing more, uh, less and less oil uh, over the next few years? Thank you. You go first? Uh, sure. So, yeah, we are concerned about China from a, a consumption standpoint. Arguably, China was one of the drivers that kind of pushed prices up starting in 2004. The change of their economy from export-led to more, you know, service sector internal uh, is always was always expected to be accompanied by lower GDP. But when you then look into that GDP a little bit closer and kind of divide it out between consumer versus industrial, arguably you could make some arguments that uh, that on an industrial side they're actually in a quasi recession, uh, and on the consumption side it's still strong. And you're seeing it within their demand, which is a huge divergence of gasoline versus diesel, gasoline being generally a proxy for consumption-led uh, demand and diesel for uh, industrial-led demand. Our view right now is that uh, you, know, the, you had a huge amount of, of uh, uh, increase in demand in China last year. They actually had a, uh, a slightly higher elasticity than we expected despite some of the changes in, uh, in currency. And so we had, uh, I think, about 400, 440,000 uh, barrels a day of increase last year. Last year, we also ex uh, thought that uh, global demand went up by about 1.6 million barrels a day. So a, a portion of it, but not the big one. This next year, we do see it slowing down even more. And we're also concerned that this is you know, a longer term, slower demand, particularly as one aspect that I haven't seen a whole lot of people talk about, which is they've had a lot of projects come online uh, that need LPG. And that once that kind of goes away, that while the volume is still there, the growth goes away. And so as that closes out, it just closes out. There's no, like you need new projects in order to keep that, that increase uh, going. Terrific. Gentleman in the third row here. Thank you. Herbert Regenbogen, Professor of International Law and International Relations at Turo Law Center. In contrast to the driver physical budgets uh, in terms of the governance of late rentier states, which have sovereign wealth, isn't it really the driver macroeconomics since uh, the Climate uh, Conference of Paris has made it very clear that $20 trillion of, of oil assets will remain in the ground in the assumption that the Earth's temperature will not increase by 1.5 degrees Celsius in 2030s. And that everything that have, we've portrayed here is obsolete. If the macroeconomics and the countries whose governance are based on this, this kind of principle, which we are talking about are the GCC countries, it's really the driver. Um, want to take a shot at that? Yeah, sure, I can. Um, uh, so that has been talked about in terms of uh, this this driver. That you know, well, if you have the view that uh, oil isn't going to be worth much or is not is not going to be useful in the future to the same sort of extent, it makes sense to just get it out now and monetize it just as quickly as you uh, as you possibly can. But I think actually most of these countries uh, right now are much like uh, public companies, which is they are focused on the next quarter uh, and the next year uh, and trying to survive now. So while I think that that has been talked about, and certainly I've had conversations with a number of, of people within the GCC about that, 
uh, about that risk. I think right now in terms of that change and that view of why OPEC not only did not cut production on November 27, 2014, but why it has actually increased production, it that might be a background reason, but the real reason is because of these market share issues uh, and because of uh, needs for revenue today. I would jump in. I think there there may be a little something to this argument that, at least from the the Arab OPEC perspective, reasonably lower for longer, maybe fifty or sixty dollars, makes a good deal of sense in a world where you're still going to have depletion. You're still going to have by 2040 enormous demand from oil. But if you want to capture most of that market share, you want to force out Canada. You want to fo force out ultra deep water. You can't force out shale, so you just want to get everybody else. So there may be an argument to keep it reasonably lower, but I don't think that uh, necessarily it means that, um, uh, that you're going to eliminate it. And the thing we don't know about the INDCs and about the impact of Paris is the impact on gas. When countries are moving down the carbon chain, a lot of them may move from coal to gas. So for those of these countries that are gas producers, it may not be quite the parade of horribles that, that we might think. Let's go to Will Embry here in the second row, right here. And then the gentleman in the back. Uh, thank you. I'm uh, Will Embry from DynCorp International. Uh, David, with the uh, uh, U.S.'s uh, decreasing reliance on uh, energy from the Gulf, uh, the Gulf countries have uh, feared the U.S. has reduced its commitment to their security. Uh, how has, uh, and this has led to them, I think, going off on their own, trying to Yemen on their own, uh, Saudi Arabia forming its own coalition uh, separate from the U.S. Uh, how does the reduction in uh, oil prices uh, impact that? Well, I think, um, uh, thanks for the question, Will, uh, long-time career State Department colleague uh, as well. Um, I think that while we wish we could get out of the Middle East and those security commitments, I don't think, uh, I don't think the United States can, and we care, as you know, for, for other reasons. Yeah, it is their perception, and I think what has happened by uh, the more we are less dependent directly um, on imports from them, the more free we are to comment on, uh, on in their internal matters. And the U.S. has long had a view that more open societies in the Middle East are the key to long-term stability. And so, you know, when we were willing to, uh, to not support Mubarak, that was part of a strategy, believing that there was going to be a movement in, in Egypt that was going to be more progressive and more open, and we should be on that side rather than the other hasn't worked out so well in, in, a, in a number of those in other those countries. So I think it's changed the nature of U.S. engagement. But I think um, you know, the, the reality then is that we have not really withdrawn that commitment, and we won't for proliferation and for other reasons, security of supply. But we do need to think more carefully about the way we talk. Um, and I think some we're talking that goes for the military, it goes for our leaders, because there's a lot of perception, and when we write off the ability of some countries to defend themselves, people may see that we're think that we're not going to support them. But it's a hard straddle. We want to promote stability, and we want to promote change, and we haven't quite figured out how to do that. Denise, you're in the middle of all this, so yeah. I would also add, it's not just the, the Gulf. There's a lot of our allies in the Middle East, Israel. Many of them are thinking that we are we have uh, used the word let them hang high and dry. But this is, this is a sentiment that is not only isolated to Gulf states because of oil. It's, it, it reflects a different US policy, whether that some want to use the word less interventionist or some want to go to say isolationist. The fact of the matter is, I think some of the Gulf states are also still reeling about the Iranian deal. Uh, the fact that uh, post-Saddam Iraq has fundamentally changed the balance of power significantly in the Middle East, and the U.S. is now not engaging in the types of state-building projects 
projects that we once did. So there's a lot of shifts going on, I think, that may reflect uh, reactions to this administration or not. But it's, it's, you, you'll hear this a lot, not just from, and then you'll go to Iraq and you say, you're not involved enough. I, I'll probably hear this th through many different countries. Why are we not leading or being more clear uh, than we should be? And that has particularly come from our allies. Jefferson? I think the perception issue is vital, as you pointed out. I think on the very positive point of that in some ways is that it's forcing a country like Saudi Arabia to professionalize its military because they're a little worried that we may not be there forever. And this, I think the, the common wisdom is that we're in the Middle East to defend the Saudis. And they said, fine, so we'll spend $700 billion over the past 20 years in the military. But of course, the military is still very inefficient. Why? Because a lot of the money sort of vanishes. And uh, now, all of a sudden, they find that, uh, well, maybe we do need a very strong military. And because of this, they have been trying to modernize their military. I mean, the al-Salman clan in Saudi Arabia has lost a lot of power because it was viewed as being not professional enough in managing the, um, uh, not the al-Salman, the al-Sultan, I'm sorry, clan has lost a lot of power because they were seen as taking advantage of the situation. Uh, the al-Salman clan is taking over and trying to make it more professional. They put a a non-prince as head of the military. They put a, a very well-known manager to sort of run a lot of the, uh, of the logistics uh, for, for the military. They're using, they're show, trying to show the Iranians that they have military, they have good airplanes and they, can, they know how to run them. On the ground, it's not quite so obvious, but uh, there's some effort and it's gonna take many years to really make it a fully professional army. But that is one of the advantages of the perception that we may be leaving in the end. Terrific. Gentleman in the back's been very patient with the green tie. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your time, Rahim Rashidi with Kurdistan TV. We know the Peshmerga fighting ISIS very well, but Kurdistan staying in economic crisis. The question is what will happen for Kurdistan situation in near future, and how important is U.S. as an ally supporting Kurdistan this time? Thank you. Denise, that's got your name on it. Yeah, I guess so. um, yes, they are. Thank you. Uh, they are, and, and, and I think the United States and the coalition are very much aware of the, the very important role that the Peshmerga have played in the countering ISIL campaign as local partners on the ground. Um, now, I don't know whether you were inferring that the United States should move faster or provide direct uh, you know, revenues to get the KRG out of its financial crisis. But I think that that's, um, that's a bit of a stretch. That's not going to happen in the sense that um, the United States can't bail the KRG out. It can, and I think it is, uh, providing institutional support, uh, providing advisors to the Kurdistan regional government right now to help it improve its management, which I think is, is, is the way to go. But secondly, uh, and I emphasize again, there still is, there is, and there will remain the U.S. commitment to the territorial integrity of the Iraqi state, of Iraqi state sovereignty, and that does mean includes uh, weapons that are and have been continued to be provided to the Kurdistan regional government's Peshmerga through 
the Iraqi government continues. Those, we, we have lists that they have arrived. Uh, and that, again, goes as well with any financial assistance, not directly, um, but through some of the reforms that the Kurdistan region is trying to make, um, uh, and through that type of indirect support. Terrific. Let's go with Kevin Massey in the second row, and then the gentleman back. Thank you, uh, Kevin Massey with Statoil. I want to go back to the <clears throat> parlor game of working out what the Saudi strategy is. Um, is it uh, that we may be looking at the wrong signals or indicators here when we're looking at the Brent price day-to-day, -day, when we're looking at the U.S. rig count to see whether it's working? We, we heard from Wood McKenzie uh, last month that $400 billion, nearly $400 billion of capital investment has been deferred or cancelled uh, from private companies. Uh, is, could that be the, the Saudi endgame, that they are taking out supply in the medium term to secure a, uh, a more uh, favorable oil price over, over the medium term. Uh, and you know, just today, this morning, actually, the, the, the Russians are saying the Saudis have proposed a 5% cut. Um, it, 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 is there a point at which you could think that the Saudis have seen enough capex taken off the, the table that they are happy with the, with the medium term future, uh, that they will, they will start to moderate uh, production? Yes. How, how do the Saudis know when they won? What success? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll start. Uh, Kevin, I think you know that I would never take a Wood McKinsey report as my signal <laughs> coming from IHS. Um, so, uh, but thank you for pointing that out. Um, I would say that uh, you know the signal for them is they are they they went into this because they saw there was just too much too much production out there and they don't want to go by themselves in order to make a cut. So if they're going to make a cut, it's really, if everybody's willing to come in, then okay, they're ready to do it. They have been, but they were sick of being the only ones that kind of do that. They were, uh, trust me, they are still very irritated that in 2008, everybody made a cut, but then everybody stopped making a cut after a couple of weeks or a, a month or so. And so they really very much are looking for, they're happy to cut, as long as it's not themselves. And it has to be, uh, because of what has happened in the past, it has to be a real cut, not a, you know, uh, a, a cut of, uh, that isn't cut. real barrels. Mm. Could, could the cut they're looking for be in the capex? I mean, there is a cut going on. It's just not right now in daily production. OK, but if you have a cut in capex, and with that production goes down, then that doesn't change their strategy. Their production still would remain at 10.2. So it. it so if you're looking for, so then you could say, yes, they've quote unquote won and they've kept their production at 10.2. So if you are, it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for them being a cut being that they recognize they've won or the price is going up as saying they've won. Either one is, you know, a, a win, I would say, for them. I, I, just a, I'm curious, I mean, they've succeeded in crashing the price. Have they actually increased their market share or not? I mean, I gather at least in Asia, the Russians are still number one producer to, to China. So from that point of view, has it succeeded? If you look at, uh, if you look at Asia and you look at exports to Asia since the end of 2011, and a reminder that the NDAA and other sanctions went in on Iran at that point, if you look at the share and the, and the amount of barrels that are going into uh, Asia, particularly China, Iran and Saudi have done just as well as each other. So it looks like, it almost looks like the, there was either no sanctions relative, you know, in terms of how they've changed. The big winner, as you said, has been 
uh, Russia. Russia's you know, hugely increased its exports because of its uh, pipeline. And that's why I say the battle is really, in terms of market share, is really going to be focused on the Atlantic Basin, which is even more oversupplied than we already, you know, than, than, uh, than the uh, Pacific Basin. So by that metric, so far, the strategy is actually not working. It hasn't really made much difference at all. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there was, who was it, the gentleman uh, right there. Yes, this right there. And then the gentleman in front of him afterwards. Thank you. Uh, Jeff Epping with Energis LLC. Thanks for the discussion this morning. Jamie, you mentioned the, the overhang being about a million barrels a day. I've seen estimates from three quarters of a million to two million. How, how, what's the in range of uncertainty around those estimates? And then uh, the flip side of that, on, on demand with the world economies, there's a lot of uncertainty. How do you see demand picture going forward in the next few years? Um, so in terms of our balance right now, we do have an oversupply of about a million barrels a day. Earlier last year, it was around, you know, as high as two million barrels a day. You're right to point out and, and question, you know, the certainty of those of those numbers. Anytime we get within about a half million barrels of supply equaling demand, we would call that a, a balanced market. And realize that uh, when it comes to data for oil, uh, it is, in my mind, moving in some ways towards greater uh, transparency in some parts and greater opacity in other parts. And the place where I would say it's greater opacity is on the demand side. 2013, non-OECD demand exceeded OECD demand for the first time, and it's probably going to stay that way forever. Obviously, the excellent job that Adam uh, Siminski and others at the EIA do does not really exist in other countries, so it's a, a bit more of a lag. Uh, there on the greater transparency is that stocks and the, the holding of a, uh, inventories is becoming a much bigger uh, deal and something that we focus on a lot more. And there's a lot more transparency there versus the discussions we could have in terms of what Saudi spare capacity could be because that everybody that's got an opinion has one and those that don't have opinions still have them. Terrific. Uh, row just in front and then we'll go over here. Uh, hi, Gugaraz with Argus Media. Uh, this is probably a time when finance ministers in oil-producing countries dust out all letters of uh, asking for support from IMF or World Bank or any other institution. And uh, we saw Azerbaijan yesterday go to IMF for the first time in 15 years. I'm curious uh, your thoughts. Do you think uh, you'll see um, countries in the Middle East uh, reach out to international financial institutions? And uh, to go back to the first question, given the rise of China as an alternative uh, funding source for countries, do you think how do you think that will uh, play into potential assistance, structural assistance, whatever it may be? Uh, I'm glad you're bringing China because Barbara started bringing it. It's, I think it's very important what happened last week with the, the visit of President Xi to Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Iran. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> the, um, I, I think the, the, the Chinese are trying to, to show that they can become very important to, this, uh, to, to, to the region, and the one belt, one road, uh, one, yes, one belt, one road is a rather odd name, but anyway, policy of President Xi really puts uh, Iran at the core of, of, of their influence in the region, and I think so Iran will take great advantage of this. And the Saudis totally failed to, to do that. So I think in terms of, uh, uh, I mean, the visit did not go well in Saudi Arabia because it was not well prepared and the Saudis were, uh, are not happy 
with the Chinese for uh, position on Syria and whatnot. They love China, in they love the Saudis. China loves the Saudis in terms of oil supply. They like the fact that Saudi Aramco is the great provider and safe provider of oil. And they're a little worried about the Iranians. But uh, I think the Chinese would have wanted Saudi Arabia to be sort of a, a, a country which is fully part of this overall uh, vision of President Xi. But the Saudis don't need the money from the, from the Chinese, and the Iranians do, and the Iranians are very clever on uh, taking advantage of the Chinese willingness to develop that. So uh, I think we will see that uh, China will take more and more advantage in the region of, the, uh, uh, of putting more money into Iran to develop the oil fields of Iran and the harbors and everything. So I'm not sure where all that takes us, but uh, it, I, I think it was quite interesting to see that China is going to, or it seems to be really putting an enormous amount of pressure to become very important to the region. And the big losers here are, in my view, the Saudis, because they have not taken advantage of what was offered to them by the Chinese. And I'm not answering your question, actually. But, uh, yeah, and let's uh, I'll let you both jump in on this, but also whether anybody else in the region is likely to look for a bailout, either from the IMF or from China. Yeah, I wanted to add, the Iraqi government, for example, has already uh, approached the IMF and the World Bank in terms of uh, seeking assistance financially to balance some of its uh, financial demands right now. So that, that's already been been happened. Uh, can I just add about the, the China uh, engagement? Uh, this is beyond uh, accessing oil markets. I mean, China has signed a strategic agreement uh, with Iraq. Uh, the Iraqi prime minister traveled to Beijing uh, about a month ago. The same thing with Iran. So you're probably likely to see, or we're seeing already, an increasingly engaged China in the Middle East. This can go from arms sales as soon as, uh, again, these sanctions were lifted in, in Iran, and other types of military markets or, that, that, that the Chinese can enter. So uh, beyond oil, you will see, in my view, a, an increasingly engaged and active Iran, but not the, I mean, sorry, China, but not the type of engagement that we do. It's still, you know, it's not threatening. It's not threatening state sovereignty. The Chinese don't go in and start talking about democracy promotion and all of this other stuff, uh, human rights. They go in and they do their business, and uh, they're being welcomed. Jamie? Uh, one comment on China, and, and you know, 2008, 2009, there was a series of loan, you know, loan for oil deals with uh, with Chavez. I would say that it, it, given China's concern about its reduction in foreign exchange reserves and also kind of the, the capital flight, you're likely to see less of, of that, just a direct payment, you know, straight out uh, payment. The other thing which was very helpful for the oil market last year was a huge amount of uh, strategic stockpiling by China. You actually may see that slow down, not because, uh, you know, they're not interested anymore, but two, full, two reasons. One, the increased capacity is not as great this upcoming year as it was last year. Uh, and two, because of that concern about you know, more capital leaving the country than is needed at this, at this point. Great. I think we've got time for one or two more. Gentlemen in the sixth row here. Hi, Kenyon Weaver with the Commercial Law Development Program. Um, with Iran coming back online, what are your thoughts on the prospects for exports to South Asia, uh, Pakistan and India, for example? I, Iran says they've already built their part of the pipeline, for example, for the natural gas uh, to go to Pakistan. Thanks. Can I, can I make one little thing? You know, in, in, in 
preparation or foreseeing some of Iran potentially coming back online. Let's say the Iraqi government, for example, has been trying over the last year to secure greater markets in South Asia, whether that be India or, whether, or Southeast Asia. Um, you know, that competition or that preparation has been ongoing. Uh, I would also like to, to note, though, something when we talk about Iran, we haven't mentioned yet, we don't know the terms of the new contracts that are going to occur. And that will affect Iraq, for example. So the fact that Iraq's technical sharing agreements aren't quite attractive right now, and it really depends, and, and Iraq you know, may have to move quickly or quicker in terms of its next competitor will be how more attractive can those Iranian contracts be and how much of that market also could potentially be lost. So the, Iran's entry back into some of these South Asian markets that you've talked about, and I'm not just talking about the pipelines, um, also is to what extent can it regain some of those markets that it's lost that Iraq has uh, secured. Yeah, on the gas front, I think you've got to worry about domestic demand, which is probably their first priority. Right. Reinjection to the oil fields to the extent they're going to do it, which will be their second priority. So they may have to produce a bit more, I think, before they're ready to, Correct. to export. Correct. We've got for, time for one more. The gentleman with his hand up in the back. Thank you. Uh, Hayden Wetzel. Uh, do you feel that OPEC remains an effective organization? have their meetings on the day they say they're going to have their meetings um, at, uh, at approximately the time that they would. But in terms of an effective organization, our uh, vice chairman calls them more of a trade organization than a, than a cartel. Um, so in terms of, you know, if your view is OPEC's job is to come together and, and cut production or increase production, they are not uh, capable at doing this at this particular point. But uh, much like the Texas Railroad Commission, which was kind of the OPEC of, of years past, I think it will continue to exist. The question will be uh, if people like me actually keep attending. <laughs> and OPEC has never really been, uh, you know, efficient organization because whenever they made the dictates on uh, on diktats on, on let's cut production, everybody said yes, let's cut production. Let the other guy cut production. They never really did, except you know, since since the. Uh, the, the first war with, with Israel on these issues. But it's only basically a, a trade organization. And they talk, and at least they exchange information, which they didn't in the past. That's about it. But uh, so it, it was not really a true cartel to start with. And it's not going to be a cartel continuing either. They'll just meet to say when they, when they meet next and run their, their, their newsletters and their, their bulletins, which are excellent. And, and that's about it. Yeah, and I would, I would finally, I would say they are much like the U.S. Congress, which is a low consensus organization. So. <laughs> Terrific. Well, on that happy note, um, I think our time has come to an end. I want to thank Annie Medallia and Chris Brown and the Crack Atlantic Council event staff for, uh, for putting this on, our speakers, and all of you at home and on the web. Thanks for coming. <laughs>